Hey, what's up, podcast? Thank you so much for tuning in again for a new episode of the, the Gomuluku podcast. Um, it took a little bit more time for me to um, edit this. No, not to edit, but you have to know that I'm doing everything by myself. So it, this episode is one hour and 45 minutes. Not only do I have to make sure that it sounds okay, but I also have to like listen back to it. For a second time to make the show notes so um, you have some chapters some highlights that you can like skip to or if you're interested more in those uh, chapters you can yeah skip to them as well so it took me a little bit more time apologize for that but it's up now so I hope you enjoy it it is a conversation with Michael Charles I met Michael through a mutual friend um, at COP23, mutual friend was India Logan Riley from Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm still hoping to get her on the podcast as well, as, as I hoping I'm hoping that many other people want to have this conversation as well on my podcast. Um, he's Dene, an emerging leader, uh, youth as well, and is about to be the head of delegation for a indigenous delegation from Sustainus to COP25 which is about to happen in Madrid next week so we're all preparing for that uh, for that meeting um, Michael has since COP23 he has interacted with both Sustainus youth constituency as well as the indigenous people's caucus and has many and he's been, he's been very observant. That's what I, um, one of the things that I recall from the conversation that I, ha- that I had, that he pays attention to things and is able to see patterns and it's, it's also very critical, so which is very good. He, we had a, well, we talked about a lot of things. Uh, it's a one hour and 45 minutes about his, spare points so I think the the w- one thing that Michael can, could really really uh, focus on for the for Indian peoples in general is the corporate accountability uh, niche um, if I may um, not many Indian peoples are focused on that and he could be our specialist or a specialist on that and then because uh, he has a, has a lot of interest in that, very vocal, uh, very intimate with the the work um, on in that in that space. So I think that he's gonna he's gonna talk about that, and of, of course his um, his observations, um, what the caucus did, what they're good at, what they're not good at, and a lot more things. So. I, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please reach out to Michael on social and let him know what you think. Let him know that you're listening to this podcast. And subscribe and share this with other people other people as well. And yeah, hope you enjoy it. This is the Gomaluku Podcast. Give us the the origin story of Michael Charles. 
<laughs> the origin story of Michael Charles. Ah, uh, yeah. So once upon a time, uh, I like how it starts. I like. <laughs> I like how your story. Uh, no, so I was born in Arizona, um, right outside my my reservation. I'm from Navajo Nation. Um, I'm Diné. Uh, I'm. I was born um, to a half European mom, and then um, a dad and from Navajo Nation and our two clans based on his parents are um, the matriarch clan is the Salt clan or Ashihi and um, then the patriarchal clan is Nikai Dene'e or Mexican Navajo Um, so basically our family comes from the southwest region of the United States pretty close to the border of Mexico Um, grew up lived in Arizona pretty close to family for a bit and then moved up to Colorado when I was still pretty young and then kind of spent my childhood going back and forth between, um, in a lot of ways, what we, when we think about what it means to like walk two worlds or being indigenous in a post-colonial world, I felt like I really lived that in terms of I was physically like going to school in the very like colonial world and then a lot of my family was still back on the reservation. So growing up, we would go down for most of our holidays, usually a couple times a year and we would we'd drive down there and you kind of then go and experience very differently where we heard our language spoken in the house and you learned little bits and pieces of, of your culture. You heard a lot of the history and about the family. Um, so it was a very interesting way to kind of grow up as a kid where you don't really think much about it and it just kind of is as it is. And then um, I think it was more as I kept growing and growing and learning more things where I kind of remembered this is where we came from and really wanted to dive and dig in more to that. Um, and I feel like since that, it's been a lot of like, like my my aunties back on the on the reservation who have been a big help in like helping me learn more and and ask questions and kind of learn more about where our family came from. How were you like a child? Like, a, what was your childhood like? I think my childhood was just like the really high energy, annoying kid that I was. So I was the youngest as well. So you're definitely just like annoying when you're the youngest, and that was definitely a role I played. I was also very, I don't know if like smart's the right word, but like as a, as a kid just like knew things, like could figure things out pretty well and then knew exactly what the line was that I wasn't supposed to push and then go as close as possible up to it. Like whether it was my parents, my teachers growing up and I feel like that was always something that was on the, on the edge of always either being in trouble or being like getting excellent remarks and whatever it was I was doing whether it was school is like yeah he's got good grades but he's also the most like just doesn't pay attention to any rules and um yeah I think I think I was a lot to handle as a kid <laughs> well <laughs> I think for, for me it was I think pretty much the same that I was able to um get away with a lot of stuff um because everybody was like no he doesn't do that he doesn't do stuff like that and and I was able to like like you said, you know, like um, get into like the very edge of things, mm-hmm. like before you get like like it gets like um, like doing stuff at school or parents, of course. Like I think I think my my parents had a very hard time um, controlling me from time to time. You know, like yeah. it, it it was I, I was okay for 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 the most of the time, but sometimes I could like do a lot of things that that. Um, I wasn't supposed to do, you know, and so, 
yeah it made me <laughs> i think it made me who i am actually just to figure things out i like i like to figure things out when i was a kid mm -hmm. you know and and i like push the boundaries yeah so when i was allowed to just play outside you know like my 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 parents always thought all right you can only only play in this in the field or like at some place or I don't and I was always like, all right, let's see how far I can go. And I eventually ended up across town or across the city, you know, in, in some place, you know. Yeah. Having a hard time finding your way back. Um, but that, for me, like, like, I think that also contributed to, like, to the work that we do. Yeah. Eventually. You yeah. Know, like, pushing the boundaries. Let's, all right, let's see what's out there. Like, uh, what can we do? What can we achieve? Yeah. So, uh I don't know, like, <laughs> I see you nodding. Yeah, so. I was going to say, I feel like I grew up with that. And then the other thing that I think it's always stuck with me and it's definitely still very present is the the idea of, like, being told you can't do something and then you're just like, oh, yeah, okay, watch me. And I remember, um, like, one example that always comes to mind is, is when I was in Spanish class as, like, a freshman in high school or something, and a Spanish teacher just, we kept getting in trouble for talking in class, and she, the Spanish teacher basically said, like, you can only talk in class if you're speaking in Spanish. And so I basically learned a level of Spanish that no one ever should know, like in one night and just came back and only <laughs> spoke in Spanish like the next day. Um, just because that was like the rule. And I was, as you said, trying to always push, push the line. And I, I also knew it would make them kind of mad. And I was always, yeah, trying to toy with, with what I could get away and kind of how to surprise people, I think. And that definitely probably still comes up more in my life than I realize. Right, right, right. Yeah. So how, how's your family doing? Like, uh, you, have a, you, have, you have siblings? Or? Yeah, yeah, two siblings. Um, I'm the youngest. We're all within about three, four years of each other. Uh, so we were all in high school together for one year, which was... How was that? Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my brother would have been, been a senior. My sister was a junior. I would have been a freshman that year. And um, we were all very into like sports and, and athletics and so my brother and I actually had to like compete for spots for the first time in our life of okay we both made a varsity team who's gonna actually start and that actually came up to be like an issue more than once where <laughs> could tell it was not it's not a good thing to be the younger one on the end of that but um, it was fun yeah it was interesting I, it was it's definitely weird where like your older brother's trying to like ignore you as much as possible but we also went to a tiny school there's only I had 18 that I graduated with, and over the, like our high school was probably anywhere from 60 to 70 all four years while we were there. So it's pretty hard to ignore each other. And three of them, three of us were there at the time. So right. it was pretty interesting time for us. <laughs> <laughs> a quick, quick sidestep. Are they doing um, the same work that you do? Oh, no, I, want, I don't want to call it work, but like, are they doing the same thing with what, you, what you're doing right now? Or? No, my, yeah, my siblings are very different from me. Um, my sister's, she's a teacher, uh, teaches high school and wants to coach. So she's, she's gone from a few different schools, but she lives in a small town in Nebraska. Um, so middle of the U.S. And then my brother currently is moving back, moved back in with my parents and he's just got his uh, personal fitness trainer license. So now he's working okay. at a gym. Um, He's back with my parents. So competing with you for the varsity team and everything else yeah, paid we're off. Yeah, we're still both trying to make varsity. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but yeah, and, and he's, I feel like there's been a lot of ups and downs for both my siblings, but um, yeah, I think, I think they're both 
coming to a spot where they're figuring out kind of what's the next step and yeah I guess I'm looking forward to see where they're at and I think for me it's been interesting because I've been out of not that I've been out of the picture of the family but I moved away from the western half of the United States about seven seven years ago um, for school and to pursue academics so I feel like I just take the chances I get to kind of pop back into their lives and see what's happening but yeah our family's not really one to that just communicates every day that's just not the okay, expectation yeah. you just when you're together you check in <laughs> right right so I, I moved as well from um, from when I started um, college when I went when I started studying law I moved away from the family and it was exciting and hard at the same, at the same time because you um, I've only I've only known how to grow up with my family around me Mm-hmm. And even though I moved into another city, um, I lived in with my uncle, it was still, it was different because you yeah, had just siblings around you. So um, it's almost like you missed uh, like some, um, yeah, but well, yeah, sometime like some key times with, with your family, mm-hmm. you know, like, because you're always, you, you're not in the same place, right? So, um so you check in like every, like, not every other week a month, but like a weekend in once a month or something. You you, you go you go back and like, you check in, of course, and mm-hmm. your mom's happy to see you and siblings doing their thing. I have two younger siblings um, and one older sibling, and the two younger ones they're like they're doing their thing and, and, and stuff and um and I in retrospect I feel that I might have um yeah been away for out of their lives for 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 um i missed a couple of times actually um i don't know how you say it like key times of key like yeah quality yeah. time that's what it is <laughs> quality time with um with with his siblings um hey so, so hold on yeah sorry i'm jumping i'm like a Monkey jumping from tree branch to tree branch here. Um, so varsity team, what, what, what kind of what kind of sports did you do? So in, in high school, I played um, basically all the classics that our school offered. So football, basketball, and baseball. I was really into skateboarding. I actually, since it was my birthday a couple of days ago, my aunt messaged me and she just she just said happy birthday. I just remember you coming back and visiting the reservation. Just as a kid who loved skateboarding and would take off because we had. There's not much in our towns on the reservation, and one thing that they built, pre- like when I was pretty young, they, they put up a, a skate park where one of my um, aunts and uncles live, and I would just go down there, and I would just walk pretty far. It's a pretty good walk down to the skate park, but I would just bring my skateboard every time and just would come back for dinner, and I just had a great time doing that. So, But I, I any sport pretty much growing up, I played hockey with my dad, and we, he was my coach, and grew up playing soccer but I feel like everyone played soccer <laughs> um, yeah and and now now I play and I ended up playing football through as well through high school played in college um, for for a little bit and then when I moved to where I live now in Columbus I started playing rugby and that's oh here we go yeah that's rugby that's now the the sport that is consuming most of my life <laughs> now we can now we can relate <laughs> <laughs> awesome well which position do you play so I came in 
as as a wing, but I feel like everyone who comes in first plays wing because it's the the least amount of rules you have to know. You just can catch a ball on the edge and get tackled. Yeah, but well, you you you're, you're how tall are you? Uh, I'm about six two. Right. Yeah. So like, yeah, that's pretty good on a wing. Like, my height is like. Yeah, you can you can go on a wing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> so it was either prop or or uh, not not prop, but or a scrum half. Yeah, scrum yeah. half makes sense. Yeah. Um, I I now play lock. I've been playing lock for about two three years. Oh, but okay. Sometimes I'll come in and I'll go play matches for other teams because in the U.S. there's not very many people who play, and so t- sometimes teams can be scattered or have low numbers, and sometimes I'll just end up getting a call or a message and I'll drive two hours to go play for a random team the next day and I'll end up playing the first 60 minutes at lock and then somehow get thrown into fly half for the last 20 minutes and just play two completely different positions. Right. But it's pretty much how it works down there. You kind of have to be ready to play wherever since yeah. we don't have a lot of numbers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I, I, try, I tried out as a... I, th- I was so cocky that I wanted to be a wing on a wing. Mm-hmm. But then again, like, the people that I have to compete with are like way taller than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, so eventually, like, yeah, I think Scrum have like somewhere above Waterboy. Uh, <laughs> that's about the best uh, position for you. <laughs> so Scrum have it is, and I, and I, I like, I like uh, like having the the overview of the of the game, and I like and and like passing. Yeah, you know, we, we always pass the ball, of course, but like. Um, um, you know, like call the plays. You know, like usually this is what you do. You yeah. you, you position everything. So, um, so yeah. So that at least that that's why I like. Apart from getting hit by a bunch of Neanderthals, <laughs> that that's the biggest, <laughs> the, the best thing about about, uh, about rugby actually. And I I like I like the respect for the game. Yeah, the respect for the opponent and for the ref. Like I don't know, I can. Is there any other game out there or sports out there that has that level of respect for the referee? I don't know. Yeah, I I don't think so. And I I think it's it's also like no other sport where I think a referee would feel okay coming to like a social afterwards and and that's I think to me one of the biggest things that stuck out to me about rugby was how much community there was and I I couldn't tell if that's was was a US thing because of how few people did it that you're like, "Oh, it's my rugby friends." But it seems like that's pretty much the standard of the sport is that community is always there and it's, and it's about like like we always have after every match we have a social um the other team comes we usually invite the refs and i feel like that's the only sport where a ref would ever feel comfortable enough to go right, yeah because even no matter what happens in the match i feel like and some things do get out of like control or things happen i feel like i've never seen a time though where like there wasn't still a handshake with everyone afterwards and still like uh, the ability to go and sit down and and, and talk and hang mm-hmm. out afterwards so yeah yeah i think the respect is there at a different level definitely i i um i i, I refed a couple of a couple of games in, in rugby and i also ref a couple of games in soccer mm-hmm. and that's totally different <laughs> um i've been i've been made out for a lot of things uh, on the <laughs> soccer field seriously and i try to <laughs> and maybe that's my problem i try to bring the discipline that i'm used at a, in a in the rugby game mm-hmm trying to bring it onto a soccer game which is like no you shouldn't be doing that because <laughs> people are like what the hell are you doing <laughs> like i try, like i stopped the game i like to explain a little bit about the rules and and, and why uh i i uh, um 
uh, I saw a foul and you know things like that. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know why 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 I still did it. Well, mostly because I I think that I at one point I had a back injury and I was like blew up my not that I would could ever go pro, not that I wanted to or something. <laughs> but um, so I stopped playing rugby and then moved on to like uh, yeah refereeing games and refereeing soccer soccer hmm. games, which is which is fine. Um, so, do you run? I do. I well, I, I see a lot of photos of you, man, on Facebook. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> if if ever there's so like from, from the people that I that I that I um, interact with in the in the UN climate change, <laughs> um, it's either Johnson or Michael. That every other post on Facebook or, or social media is about running. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, all right. Well, so you run, huh? Like, yeah. what, do you, what do you do? So I think it was when I first moved to went, moved and went to college, and I so I walked onto the football team not until my junior year, um, and so I was like at the gym, kind of being like, yeah, this is just routine, and I was just like, what am I, what am I here for? Like, I didn't really have any goals of like why I was at the gym. There wasn't really besides like, I guess healthy living, but that that was kind of boring to me. So <laughs> um, I was trying to figure out like what what could I compete in? What could I just like do something with? Um, and I got really into like obstacle course racing. So like the the big names like Spartan Race, Tough Mudder, wow. all those okay. things. And I just started doing that and got really into like the long long distance obstacle course racing. And yeah, just kind of, yeah, I did it for like three, four years. Um, ended up in, a, in like a weird competitive circuit of it where I was qualifying and kind of traveling around. And I think I competed in three world championships um and Here just we was, go <laughs> okay. and, and just was like oh i guess yeah i don't know it was like a really big part of my life and then i i think i i ended up with two knee injuries in rugby and, and never really came back and started running again in the last i mean i'm only maybe two years away from my last time that i ran at like a high level but yeah i just i decided to focus a bit more on on rugby and Usually that ended up putting on more like weight than being conducive to long distance <laughs> running. So, right. Um, f- but yeah, for a little while I was balancing both, and I think the more I got into rugby, I feel like that's what I want to do right now. And I assume I'll probably end up still running and getting back into more of the longer distance stuff soon. But so, so whenever you're in, um, so in a bond internationals or at concert parties or whatever you're at the UN, do you do you do any sport type of sports in between or do you have any time for that or <laughs> it's, yeah i remember my first time coming through and it was my first cop and i, I kind of made a mention to the the group i was here with like it's really important to me that i just have you know just 30 minutes and, and i can just go for a run it'll just help me be a little more focused and i think it happened like once or twice <laughs> um, in the beginning right <laughs> yeah it's like the first, first day and then i think the weekend <laughs> i went once yeah. when things were just a little slower um I feel like I end up not prioritizing it, and I, I feel like I try to just do some things, but but usually it's just walking around. But I feel like I end up valuing my time here with people that I won't see as often versus like that time to go run or something. And usually by the time I wake up, I'm not waking up early. I'm waking up as late as I can every morning, trying to get as much sleep as I can. So, um, yeah, not usually, but no, yeah, <laughs> no. So <laughs> it was. 
so when I'm not at the UN, like I try to have like a like a daily routine. Like mm-hmm. so, I get up in the morning, grab a cup of tea, and usually within like 15 minutes of me getting up, I am already outside. Yeah. Either on my way to the gym or do something, at least some sort of exercise. Um, and I like it. I love it. You know, so like it gets my day going. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't need coffee. I never had coffee actually. Yeah. I, I hate coffee. <laughs> um, sorry for all those coffee drinkers out there. <laughs> uh, and Starbucks. <laughs> um, but that changes when I get to the UN meeting. Like if it's for, if it's for one day, it's okay. Like a couple of days, it's okay. But if you're in for a little, for a longer period of time, one or two weeks, man, like you, you try to keep you, you like like you said, for the first couple of days, you're like, all right, let's do this. Yeah. You know, like, let, let's have a f- go for a run on the first day. And the second day, you're like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> Third day, you're, you're like, you know what? I'm gonna sleep in because uh, I need, I need, I need my sleep. And then I don't know, like it's the routine that I'm that I'm used to, um, just outside of the UN, um, never happens when I'm when I'm in the UN. And I can see that I, I add a lot of weight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as soon as I get the, get the plane back or back home or uh, train or whatever, it is, I'm like, yeah, I have to go on a like a <laughs> salad regime or something. You know, like, I'm gonna go hike a million mountains, <laughs> something like that. I don't know. It's it's. <clears throat> then again, it's it's like you said. It's um, you prioritize the people, right? right? The people that you that you don't often run into when you when you're back home mm-hmm. tell, tell me about the relationship that you have with the people like what the um yeah because i think yeah what what makes you come back yeah i think i think i'm always shocked how like close you can get to people in such short time when you either spend a lot of like long hours with them but like you're but you're kind of like all in I don't know if it's like a vulnerable position, but like I think coming here, especially within um, most of the groups that I work with here are usually either indigenous peoples or, or the, the young people that are here. And I feel like usually we're so different than other people in these halls that we see when we come to the UN that it's like very, I don't know if like, I don't want to say like outcast, but I, I feel like we just definitely feel different when we come here. And I feel like we're very, because we're not used to the space we come here you know, maybe a couple weeks a year, but that, this isn't our daily routine at all, by any means. Um, I think you just like find ways to get closer with people. And yeah, and I think I, I, I feel like you just learn so much about people quickly. And, and, you, and a lot of times when we show up here um, as indigenous people and, and mostly as like storytellers, you kind of hear the like, the deep and the close stuff quickly because that's the stuff that we're here to talk about and bring to these, these halls and try to make this place a little more human um, at least I think when we're doing our job well and so I think you can build these connections and relationships quick because it's not like if I go and meet someone else for like a conference that might be like more research based or something and I'm there for a week and I'm not going to meet people for two or three days and just tell them like oh these are all the things that are happening back home and and to family members and and the people I come from and here that's like day one <laughs> so yeah, I think it's interesting, and I, I definitely, you kind of never know who's going to come back from year to year. I think there's definitely people that, at least at least for the younger people, it's hard to say who will be here and the next time you're coming to one of these meetings, but it's definitely the relationships that help 
make this place more, um, I guess, like easy to navigate on a day-to-day basis, and and as I said, make it feel a little <laughs> more human. Right. Do you, do you have a? Um, I used to have a hard time connecting with the when it when it came in with the. I would I would call it a veterans. Yeah. You know, uh, and so I was I was looking for people that were like young, like the youth mm-hmm. or young at heart. Yeah. And also that I, c- I had an easier time connecting with them. Yeah. Um, so that that's what it's the same with you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I definitely. Yeah. I agree with that 100 percent. And I think that was the first group that ever that I ever got like introduced here to. And that was before I even came to COP, just like had new one person from an island and then they got me in touch with people from Terrafatu in in the Maori in New Zealand before we I even came to my first cop I was on yeah I think I'd checked in with them and had figured out a little bit of what what they were going to be up to and ran into them on like my first day and it was (laughs) it's actually really funny because we were at Coir the conference of youth and I just heard my name and it was uh do you remember um I think Annie from two years ago uh well she I hadn't met her before and I think someone else with her who I was friends with on Facebook was like I think that's Michael but I'd never met them before and so the one person who didn't know me but was probably the most bold just to say whatever just yelled my name and I like looking around (laughs) and I'm like I don't know anyone (laughs) here Uh, and that's how I ended up meeting them was just because someone recognized my picture because we were Facebook friends but hadn't met each other (laughs) okay big shout out to India Logan Riley that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she gave me a birthday shout out, and I felt very special. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> she did. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I think that from from Pacific point of view, um, she is like a firecracker. Yeah. So she really like uh, is it like a it's a powerhouse. She really brings things into motion. Yeah. And I'm think we, as, at least from Pacific point of view, like we're very blessed at having her around, uh, at least in the climate change arena. Yeah, um, because she, I don't know, like she brings up the, the kind of energy in, in the meetings that we have and um, into conversation that we have. That is actually that I always feel that's needed. Yeah. Um, because sometimes I feel uh, the meetings are so abstract. You know, they like it's about like as an Indian peoples, it is our plate. I, um, to bring the human element back mm-hmm. into these climate change talks, you call it negotiations, talks, whatever. But like, it is a play. Like we have to like humanize it. You know, like you have the, you have the elders, and I think that that's the strength of the elders and the youth. Mm-hmm. The elders like bring the, their knowledge, and the youth bring their their demands, their their hopes and dreams. Right. Yeah. And that that's. Yeah, I think that's why I'm very glad to have. Hopefully, she stays on for a long longer than, <laughs> than uh, for, for for a long time. But like, I'll, that's why I really like having India Logan Riley having having her around. Yeah, I think too coming into my first cop and being introduced to her pretty quickly. I think it was very important for me to have someone who could kind of rope me in to to the caucus. Um, spe- well, specifically within the Indigenous Peoples Caucus, because I came with a group who had. Some familiarity, some familiarity of the space. They'd been coming. Our organization has been coming for like 15 years or something to COPS, but they've they've never really engaged too much with the Indigenous Peoples Caucus. And so 
to kind of have someone to kind of rope me in and get me up to speed was extremely helpful. And I think I felt when I came back in, in Poland last year, I think I felt much more able to do work than sit and observe. And I think it took me like a full year of like engaging where I could and, and learning bits and pieces. But I think it took me a, a take some time here to like figure out, okay, what's actually happening if I want to get something done, how do I do it? How do I propose new ideas? How do I support work that's going on? So I'd, especially as young people, it's so easy to come here and just sit and be like, well, there's just things happening everywhere, almost to a, an overwhelming point where, and you, you don't even know what parts you're invited to, what you can say. Do I just go sit in a bunch of rooms and listen? Um, what am I supposed to be listening for? And I think it takes a while to do that. And I was just really grateful to have someone to kind of help rope me in and, and catch me up um, over that first year and then I think that's really important when we think about bringing in other indigenous youth and stuff too is, is how do we make sure that there are people to accept or welcome them accept them and catch them up to speed a little bit and without I think other either many veteran youth and, and people that have been here to kind of pass on pass on the torch as we were even talking about a little bit earlier um, that's I think such a huge aspect to making sure that youth find a place to actually do meaningful work here and, and bring those stories and then feel feel an energy to come back and do that again in the future right so, so I, I would imagine that that not just youth but people come in with their hopes and dreams and immediate I always tell them immediately you have to like um, manage your expectations yeah. um, can you tell me a little bit about Tell me, yeah, tell me a little about your, how you came into the, to this arena. Uh, like, with, with what were your hopes and dreams? Like, uh, um, yeah, I think that would be very interesting. Yeah, I think, so I first kind of got pulled in and, and engaged with the organization that I ended up coming to COP with, with Sustain Us. Um, I kind of started feeling, so I was sitting... I'm a PhD student right now and I was sitting kind of at my desk and when all of Standing Rock unfolded, which was at during the time of Marrakesh. 2016, 2015. Yeah. Um, I think it was at COP22 is when that kind of all unfolded. Yeah. And, um, I was just kind of sitting and working at my desk and I always felt like my education was supposed to be a gift to my people, um, thinking about how many people were involved and in, in my ability to kind of learn and, and keep going and, and be supported by a full community as I went through my schoolwork. And I think I'd always had that mindset of like, I need to be sitting here so that I can do my work and, and eventually uh, serve my people. And I think that weird clause of like eventually and, and not really taking time to do it in the meantime was something that I was missing a little bit in, in the middle of my, my, my schoolwork right now and, and my research. And um, yeah, I, I kind of got scooped in afterwards because I felt like there had to be something more I could do and, and some way to use my academia and, and even just like a status as a young person it's so much easier to apply with things when you're like I have this degree this degree when it doesn't really matter if we're here to be storytellers and to, and to bring that humanity then pretty much human beings should be qualified to be here but um, I, I saw that as an opportunity and that's what made me realize that I can find some way to support the issues that were going on as I was sitting and watching um, kind of like the, the horrors of, of Standing Rock, uh, at least the negative parts of it where we're watching um, the people kind of beat on the front line and, and, and abused by police and, and um, 
like the water cans, the dogs, you, I had to sit and like watch all that. And I felt very helpless and I felt like this was a way, uh, saw this as an opportunity to kind of use some of this background that I had and credentials in whatever sense of the word, um, that if I could be here, maybe there was something that could happen within the, the negotiations that might help and protect our people back home. Um, so I think I came in with the hopes and dreams of, I mean, I guess the, the end goal is just to have our people cared for and, and to have them be able to have, like our hopes, I guess my hope and dream is that everyone back home can have a hope and dream and have a chance to pursue it. And I think you just watched how these different impacts of human rights was really for me the, the, the main focus. And I think what really got me in the environmental track was watching how many environmental-based organizations would show up to these, these rallies for Standing Rock and um, come in and, and we would, a lot of us as, um, as natives back home, we would, we would host and be asked to do like these drum circles and, and be speakers and pray and um, we would show up and do that and then these kind of other environmentalists would kind of completely change the messaging and talk about how the oil was bad but I couldn't get past the fact that the human abuse was, was the worst part. and. I think that's what needed to be here was more the, the stories of, of protection and not just oil's bad, CO2 in the air is bad, because that, that all is connected and that does impact our people, but you, when you see those immediate threats, it's hard to ignore that. And I felt like a lot of the work that was happening outside of our indigenous communities and, and indigenous resistance was just that, was missing a lot of that human rights aspect. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we see that very often here in the halls as we have been advocating for indigenous rights and human rights language in a lot of these texts. Right. But I think going back, I guess, to your question was um, kind of what did I show up with those hopes and dreams and, and what was the expectation? I think I just kind of, I think I probably came in pretty blindly, though, the first time. I've just had no idea what to expect. I think I saw my role as to just be someone here to, to bring and share stories and let people understand what's happening um, at least from my, from what I knew of the, of the, the issues back home in the U.S. based um, indigenous peoples and, and specifically back home on our reservation as well. Right, right. And as there, to, to me, it's um, about making sure, like you said, uh, making sure that our peoples. So not just my peoples, but like indigenous peoples in general or human humanity. Mm -hmm can survive and thrive you know and, and then we need we need a planet you know <laughs> so there, there's if there's one condition for human um survival it's a planet yeah. you know um so like we we need a planet and for me i only i only came into the whole climate change um side of the united nations 2015 mm -hmm. i was like by accident Seriously, I was like, hey, can you fill in for me? Like, um, sure, I don't know what's going on, but at, at COP21. Hmm. So, like, if ever there's a point <laughs> that you should go in, come in prepared, it was COP21. But I went in, I'm prepared. And I think for me, like, the only thing that I could do was um, the experience that I have within the UN, the UN system and to provide value. So, like, all right, this is what I have and how can I help? And I, I just chose to like, all right, let's fill in the gaps. Like, where are where are the gaps, and how can I fill them? And and eventually, I started to develop this 
hope and dream. So I didn't really have a hope and a dream actually when I when I came into the climate change mm-hmm. um, area. I, I developed it over time. I'm like, oh wow. So yeah, I this is what we can do. This is what we can do in terms of in terms of advocacy and how we can help um, Indian peoples or our small islands to to survive. You know, and and, and how we can be resilient and adapt or like or fight climate change. Like yeah. that's that's been my frustration actually. In also, so with hopes and dreams comes frustration of me, right? Yeah. That we're all talking about climate uh, adaptation and mitigation, but not about fighting climate change. So, so when you, so all these conversations that we have, that that they are having, so the United Nations is organizing actually, and that we we are part of, mostly is about mitigation and adaptation. Whereas, like, what well, what happened to fighting climate change? Seriously, what happened yeah. to it? <laughs> like, like you y- you gave up? Yeah. Like, so say, what's what's going on? And I think I think that's one of, one of the things that we as Indian people should be we continue doing that, that keeping keep that ambition high and keep, keep that aspiration high that that uh, as that we as a people should be continue to fight climate change yeah. you know it's and it sounds very um logical to us <laughs> but once you go into these meetings and you, you hear what what they're saying it's almost like it's like dehumanizing the whole the whole climate change yeah um conversation or the climate <laughs> climate crisis actually it's a crisis you know yeah. and it's so it's so yeah like frustrating at some point and then um apart from, of course from from what's what's going on um in terms of the different areas actually because it's not only they call it climate change of climate yeah climate climate change but we're talking about loss and damage adaptation agriculture like how do you keep track of what's going on in these in at in in these meetings? Because there's so much going <laughs> so much going on. Usually, it takes a lot of people who also know it or can follow different things. And I think um, at least I've been lucky enough to almost always be here with a team. And I don't know if this is the lucky part, but the last two years, everyone of my team was outside of the Indigenous Peoples Caucus, so. I could kind of show up and, and check in of what were what were the indigenous people's caucus looking into, what was on, what were they following, what was important to them, but then I could also go back and have other people on a policy team, actions team, media teams who were kind of informing me on, on every other bit and piece, and I think it's important to make sure that we are at least informed of what else is going on so that we can figure out where to engage, especially as indigenous peoples, and I think, um, I mean, <laughs> we've talked about this a lot, but we need... We, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to figure out how to how we can better track what's happening here so that we can kind of be on our own um, boosting our own uh, ability to fully participate and and I think there is do you have any ideas how we can do that yeah oh uh, man shoot seriously <laughs> shoot <laughs> lay them all out yeah I think I think we should have I think it's important for everyone's voices to be heard. I think that is very under fundamental, but I think what we need to work on is figuring out how our regions can kind of have our own task forces or, because the way we operate, we, t- we talk about needing full regional consensus. And, and I think that's important so that we acknowledge 
that who we are as indigenous people is, and, and what we know is, is pretty fractioned in, in the term indigenous peoples. And I think if, if more regions came and said like, these are, these are things that we need to bring up as issues, but, but we, don't have to, we don't have to be perfect, but we should throw out all of our red flags. Um, and I think it's, it's the struggle when we sit and we talk about like an intervention or something. It's, it's have we had the right conversations to trust someone to do that and, and do that representing our voice and they should know what flags we have. And then, you know, when we have things, give, give quick feedback that's, that's more about the red flags, not about making it perfect. Um, and I think that is one way we can help spread out um, some of our, our work. And I think what we have gotten into is, is a very tunneled vision way of approaching here where um, we focus, as, at least as indigenous peoples, we focus so much on a, on a platform and trying to figure out what was the mechanism to give us a voice that we kind of forgot how to talk and prepare about what is our voice for the last couple of years and um, how do we really make statements. And I think, um, yeah, I think, there, I think for me it has, like when I work with people, I, I really focus a lot on can I build that relationship to trust that person to do it and, and know, my, know my concerns, or at least if, if something's not perfect, they should, they should know enough about me and my people that they, would, they, would kind of, they start to build in those flags themselves. And I think that's, when I think about what I would like, um, so I, I'll be leading the Sustain Us delegation for COP25, and we're, we're bringing in an indigenous delegation um, of, of youth from across the US, and I think that's one thing that I'm really th hoping to focus on as a leader as in preparing is how do we build those relationships that we don't need to make every decision based on every person in the room, but we should, we should know each other well enough that we pretty much know and can hear what we see those flags being in, in preparing ahead of time. Because um, I, I think that's where I saw a lot of frustration and kind of working even within my own delegations and stuff here is we spend so much time updating talking about all these things but we don't do it in a very concise way because that's not the way things are done here things are drawn out and so text heavy and worried about that but if we're here to show up as as indigenous people or in, as in the case of sustain us as young people we already mentioned that we're here to bring kind of that human aspect and the storytelling and as as important as some of those um commas periods certain words that mean things might be to the parties and there are are cases where that shouldn't matter to us as well I think sometimes we kind of overdo it and we need to be able to check ourselves and figure out how to step back and and not worry about the perfection but more about making sure that we can bring indigenous representation because yeah. I think sometimes we're limiting ourselves by making sure our our statements or, or our voices are unified and I think there's an importance in that um, but I think sometimes we draw out the details that aren't as necessary and and we don't have too much time when we come here together and um, have an hour every morning to meet as a caucus and and try to set the plans for the day um, it's really hard to make sure everything's covered in that so i think it's it comes down to how do we really build that trust in between each other and and how do we also learn a bit more about those regional differences so that if i were to just speak and write if i were to write an article today how do i know what's happening to my brothers and sisters across the world so that i can be as inclusive of what's going on in their world too as i think about indigenous people globally right no definitely and i i think that's also the best way to do it um you bringing uh, the indigenous delegation through sustainers is to look at the uh, the lessons learned 
you know like it's like how the caucus is organized how it's behaving how the interaction is how the dynamics are um like look at the good things of it and learn from the from the things that are not so helpful mm-hmm. in, in in this um, in this environment and because like i said you know it's, it's all the the very fundament of, of all this is trust right yeah you gotta trust one another to do things and at some point i just feel that like well that there's this I don't want to call it mistrust, but it's a lack of trust. Yeah, uh, there's a lack of trust at some point. I don't. I just don't know why. Like I can't put my finger on it. The only thing that I can do is like to fight it by trusting people. You know, like and it's it's. Why that you make a leap of faith? You know, like yeah, yeah I. I want you to trust me, so I'll have to. I ha- I trust you. You know, mm-hmm. to to do to do things, and um. And that's. Yeah, that, that's something that that have been sort of for the last couple of years in 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 the caucus environment. Uh, I've been co-chair for a while, for for like a year, and I always what bothered me was was that there were so many things that we needed to focus on, so many streams, so many avenues that we could use actually, but we we're only focusing on one. Mm-hmm. All right, and I was. I just couldn't get the people actually to like to organize ourselves. All right, like, uh, so this group focuses on this, that group focuses on I don't know agriculture, that that group focuses on accountability or something, you know. But it's all like like it was a bottleneck to, into one process. Yeah, and I, and I uh, is is there any? anything out there like you, you work with, with a lot of constituencies uh, for example well you like said yourself sustain us and youth NGOs is there anything that we can learn from them that you're like hey that's a very good thing that they're doing and that in these peoples ourselves might be it might be helpful for us hmm maybe I don't <laughs> I don't feel like I have really good examples, but I, I've had, I feel like I've experienced maybe some more, f- res- some of the results, but I also, I'm not sure if, I also think I might've been just like taking advantage of the way that their systems work right. to get things right. done the way I thought would help indigenous people the best. Um, and, and as we go through a, a much kind of heavier process to make sure that what we say here has, um, unanimous approval and support from indigenous people across the world there's a lot of other ngos that are like well there's the speaking opportunity someone just needs to do it so that we look like we're participating and i've been able to snag that a few times for other constituencies and go up and just talk about my experience as an indigenous person not on behalf of our caucus but just as a however i fit into whatever that constituency but just here i am as as a indigenous person with these different thoughts and, and this is what I know and here's what I just want to say um, and, and the, the, the only up, like the upside to that is um, we've been a- they're able to spread out to a lot of other things as long as one per- person says hey I'm a young person I want to speak at this event they have that flexibility to do that wow. what they're going to say could be it's ki- you're kind of 
it's kind of throwing a blind trust. And I, I know it hasn't always worked out in their favor and a lot of, they've had some issues with that. But I think there's a way to, we're not a big caucus, so we don't have, when we think about our caucus and, and our ability to um, make sure we're reaching out. And, and as long as we have someone who's willing to do some of the work, I don't see why we shouldn't be supporting that in whatever that is. And just even like a pretty basic, like, yeah, this is an under, like, this is the overview of the issue. We have this, like, either a good thumbs up, thumbs down, and then you tell your story and what you know about it. Because I think when we talk about even representation as indigenous people, it's so complicated because usually we're there as the only indigenous person in the room. There's not necessarily other people who will be there. And, and um, we kind of see this over and over again. Well, if, if we don't throw someone in the room, we just know that there's not going to be someone there because the process wasn't made to have us in the room. Um, so if we need to keep kind of fighting and showing up to be there, uh, I think there, it's important to, to take the time we have and, and make statements when we can, whether or not it's on behalf of the constituency or behalf on, of one person and their experience right. using the platform of the constituency. And, and mm -hmm. I think that's why we have it and that's why we have a platform and that's why we have all these things is because we've constantly been trying to fight for voices and representation, but I don't think we always bite at every opportunity that comes because we kind of want to move slow and intentionally, which is in a lot of ways really, really good. And I, th I think that's important because we always have to kind of stay accountable to our communities and, and the people that, yeah. But, but at the same time, I think maybe there's, there's other prep work that we could be doing. I don't know if it's necessarily across the year. I know last year going into Poland, it was really helpful in our, like two days before we started COP of just what are the what are the main things we're following and what are the, st what are the stances of indigenous peoples? Because then no matter where you went to speak, it doesn't really matter which of these bodies are here. They all have some sort of piece where I've, if we talk about representation or if we talk about uh, human rights, I think we're like our two main things that we talked about for COP24, that fits in and applies to almost any place we could possibly speak here. And so I think there are some fundamental things that we should just agree on and, and I think we do. And, and not worry so much about that nuance and let the nuances kind of lay where they do because in the end we're all just kind of humans speaking on behalf of our experience. Um, other than that though, I, f <laughs> I feel like, and I, and I don't even know if that's a good thing for their organizations, how easy it has been to kind of swap us or snag a spot and go speak last minute. Um, but other than that, I feel like there's a lot of dangers that they've had too, of, of negatives of not being able to make sure everyone in the room's heard. And, and what I've always felt as, especially working with organizations where I'm the only indigenous person is that it, it doesn't really matter who's in, in charge. It's the people who have, um, it's, it's almost like a, a, it's almost a way of thinking. It, it's, we, th we think that leadership is, is directly related to like productivity and in a lot of ways that that comes out here is in work plans, text, documents, whoever's typing the most, who's becoming the leader in the group. And I think that's what's pretty important about having an indigenous people's caucus is I don't see that here. We, we respect our elders, whether or not they're here making Google Docs, you know, they, we all have our role and we, ha we have a, a, a more, a, a less hierarchical respect for that. Of, of we all have our role, we're all equally valuable here. And I think what I really don't like in working with a lot of the other organizations is it's who made the most Google Docs that week. That's 
like who made this strategy and action plan and whether or not that actually is going to mean anything is a whole other story but then you show up and when you're following certain things it's usually those people that somehow have tried to validate their their leadership and their voice and I feel like a lot of times when you're the only person in a room I, I could just care less what's on those texts um, and so I, I feel like I've had a lot harder time trying to figure out um, how to bring in indigenous culture value the storytelling kind of slowing down enough to not okay I, actually I have, I have another thing but it's more on the it's it's the opposite what, what I think we do well is, is an IPO group that is not helpful <laughs> in other groups um, and that's that's more on the, the I guess it's the case of of not just worrying about um, just kind of escaped me <laughs> I, I guess I guess I was thinking more about, about like the kind of that level of productivity and, and what it meant I just got it back I feel like a lot of the time that reason why a lot of these constituencies are coming here and focusing so much on the most text the most documents the most preparation strategy docs is, is it's not really about the content it's about the validation to be here and I think that's one thing that indigenous people do well is that we we are here and I haven't really ever seen someone feel like that they didn't belong here as much as we don't fit in but because we are representing sovereign nations indigenous people that we do feel like we belong here in a, in a in a sense of like we feel validated to be here not that like this was a space made for us but we don't kind of seek that extra validation which i see especially from from young people and yeah a lot of the other ngos too it's and it kind of shows in the way that they approach and make their statements and it's usually the statements that are or even in panels and asking questions it's usually getting so much more technical that it kind of kind of makes me like a little disappointed of like our young people often are showing up here just to prove that they can understand what article 6.2 is and when they when that's what they're speaking about and and trying to show that they know this or talking about how many people are in their organization or the systems that they have and how long they've been involved and yeah i feel like they're they're kind of missing the point of what it means to be a young person in this space and i i wish i would or even just non-party stakeholders in general we're kind of here to try and break and shake up the system but most of what we see here is just trying to fall into it as well um i think it's important to understand it to be able to do that but it's not important to understand it to prove you can understand it right yeah that's why i, I one of the things that i like actually also about the, about the caucus that we have is there's it's not a balanced thing but it's a harmony thing so you have the elders that bring the stories, bring the wisdom. You have the youth that bring the ten certain amount of tenacity. You know, that's the one. This is our future. We want it. Like, and this is how we want it. And you have the people in the middle, um, the veterans and the other people. Like, well, all veterans, of course, and representatives um, that actually um, provide the tools mm-hmm. and all that. So if um, Speaking for myself, like I, the only thing that I know how to provide a tool is by bringing uh, my human rights experience in, the, in this in this work. Yeah. And also, so like for example, I focus on Article Six, and also there's a one of the, the remaining uh, items that needs to be resolved before COP25 
a lot of human rights aspects in there. Like, all right, I'll focus on this one and I'll make sure that there's Article 6 in there. It's like finding your niche, your niche, yeah. you know, and, and, and all this. Like, how can you provide value um, by looking at, all right, what is that I can bring? What can I bring to, the, to, to, this, um, to this meeting? And without um, trying to make it look like you are an expert, like you said, you know, like uh, trying to make as much Google Docs as you can, you know, <laughs> or try to uh, um, uh, plagiarize uh, the entire Paris Agreement. Like, I don't care about that. Yeah. I don't, the only thing that I care about is that I, can know, I know how to use it. Yeah. I know how to use the Paris Agreement, the UN Declaration, and, and, and everything else, you know, and then use it to our advantage or to, mm-hmm. to advance our, um, you know, our ob- objectives and our, and our rights. And that's for me, and I thought there's a lot of people out there that, that we work with that have their own, you know, that some are agriculture, you know, some are adaptation, and I think I'm segueing right right now into like what you, I think that's becoming your niche uh, a little bit right now, and I think that's something that has not, what well, has been on our radar for a while uh, as an English people's caucus, um, but nobody actually engage in it and I think you're jumping into that void like you're jumping into that gap like mm-hmm. and that's what I think that was all the youth do actually we jump in those those gaps and that's corporate accountability am I right mm-hmm. like tell me a little bit about that man like I think <laughs> every every I think you I think from a ninja's point of view you're like you're you're the expert on that from, <laughs> from, from, from a caucus point of view yeah um, so what Basically, I, what's going on here right now is, is there's been a lot of campaigning over, I think, like the last four or five years about this um, idea of conflict of interest. And we see it so built into, I think, so, like society. Like when I, I'm working at a university, I have to know if any of my research ever has conflict with a certain technology, if I could possibly profit off of my research as just purely academic and not to be published um, as, or not like as a patent. And I think we see that everywhere and we saw it in like world health organization and the way that certain like fast food companies and stuff get less say about you know what actually reports come out about them or what's labeled good or bad and um for some reason here that's just like not being defined addressed in in any way when it's so built into to the even the issue of climate change and i think um I also learned that it wasn't necessarily new, and, and I think Hindu had given an intervention on it at the last intersessional, um, if not earlier than that as well. And um, yeah, so it's this whole idea of how do we bring in conflict of interest and this idea that if there's corporations and industries that are making money off of their activities that are causing climate change, and namely fossil fuel industries and, and industrial agriculture, they're profiting off of all of these issues that we see violating the human rights of us as indigenous people and really everyone across the world at this point. Why are they still in the room when we have been fighting, you know, 24 years and we got a platform and now we're, we've, we've had every bit of voice we've had in this room we've had to fight for yet really from the beginning and formation of the UNFCCC industry was there. Um, and I think it's interesting that we see them as in a lot of ways, this process sees them as partners, and, and we all need to work together, which is, imp- yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, I think working together would be 
different if there wasn't that fundamental contrast or conflict in the way that their business models and their priorities are set um, and the way we've just seen it play out in the world. It's not like they've been so well behaved in the way that they treat people, industries, especially like across the U.S. when we think about industries are the same ones who are proposing these pipelines through sacred burial grounds and then making sure that that's happening at all costs, not listening to the ideas of human rights, indigenous sovereignty, but they're the ones that are hiring mercenaries to silence the resistance and you see all of the lobbying and kind of um, withdrawn information of, of the impacts of climate change back in like way before this became a global issue. We know that those fossil companies, their scientists knew that this was going to happen. Um, and there's no one there that's really holding them accountable on a global level. Uh, but that's why I think we're all supposed to be here. <laughs> and that's supposed to be the supposed goals of the UNFCCC as well as to um, bring real solutions to at least lower emissions, if not fight climate change. They're trying to mitigate, adapt, and bring solutions that will actually protect and save people. Um, but as we see and keep inviting corporate influence in here, there's, there's been this cold capture over these negotiations that when it's all just becoming about the, the financial, the, the business of it, you can see that the, these companies are having huge lobbying efforts with a lot of the bigger um, countries. And right now what we see it's is a few specific global north countries that are really blocking this and and because they're have a pretty big power or at least voice here in the UNFCCC they're able to strong arm a lot of smaller countries or or um, uh, umbrella groups and things like that and we we even saw that within just the first couple of days here of people kind of coming back off their stance of where they're strongly for or against because of this different idea of strong arming um, but it's usually those countries that are profiting the most off of it. And, and as someone coming from the United States, that's we're the largest historical emitter. And, and a lot of times we like to say, well, now we're not doing as bad as, and then point a finger, usually at China. But like at the same time, it's, well, if we understand anything about climate change, it's not that, oh, today we were bad, but if we, if we do better tomorrow, everything will stop. It's, it's all about the cumulative impacts. and. Um, the U.S. has never been particularly good at accepting responsibility for history, but um, yeah, the way they, they show up here and, and they're really protecting a lot of the, the lobbying efforts because they know how much their country profits off of this. And the more that they can use industry to be here and not necessarily try to promote their issue, but maybe come talk about the the innovation, the carbon capture efforts, the geoengineering that could happen, it's basically a way to kind of pause negotiations and, and push off things until it gets worse and then we'd have no other option but to hope that it works. Um, and really it's just the same reliance and um, kind of abuse and taking advantage of us as a world now that we've kind of always seen with indigenous people, especially in the U.S. when we um, were trying to rebuild as, as nations that were for the most part, removed. Some of us were put back somewhere, put on a piece of land, and trying to build these, um, trying to build ourselves as sovereign nations in, in an area where we're not getting support and we're seeing all of the, the flow of money around us. But we see corporations and big industries coming in and, and doing it in a way to help us. But really, it's we can maybe feed you today, but you have no idea how much this will impact you down the line, how much money will actually be 
coming out of your community because you don't own any of these industries. Um, and sometimes we had to make those choices to make sure that we are still here today. And, and part of that sh does show the, the resilience of us to make hard decisions so that we can be here. But it also shows how much probably information and lying was misheld by that corporate capture. Um, so yeah, I think that the conflict of interest policy here is mostly being um, promoted by NGOs, constituencies, observing non-party stakeholders. And I think right now we're seeing the parties trying to push off the conversation as long as possible. Mm -hmm. But I, there is definitely some internal support from the parties. Um, it's just, I think at this point, a pretty big risk to put your to call it out and put a target on but i do expect to see that in the next week and what what i was told um informed was the big risk of these t talks was that at the at the intersessionals is when we don't see the the young people the uh, non-party stakeholders there's way less non-parties who show up here um that this is a time where they could have less of that influence and and push it off the agenda to basically be taken off until there's enough big movement for it again, um, which is a huge risk because of how, how much they've been campaigning for it over the last four or five years. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a, what, well, the reason why I'm here right now is basically to work on a long-term campaign and it's one of sustain us as, as an organization. It's one of their first cracks at what does it look to be a long-term campaign because we've always sent a new delegation every year. There's maybe one or one to two or three people who'd been to COP before and the rest are training and our whole purpose as an organization is to train up young people to have this experience but then to take it back home. Um, but we're kind of missing, well, how do we build real partnerships? How do we make sure that we're showing up and can actually build power? And I think that's where we're trying to look into these long-term campaigns and that's what we've just kicked off and launched was this idea of kicking the big polluters out. And um, I think it fits so well with the idea of indigenous people is because we we have been excluded for so long and and it's it's completely offensive to see how how inviting that this process has been to big corporations that are the source of the problem but as indigenous people we have not been the source of the problem we have if anything been the solutions that haven't been listened to and so for them to invite them in and then have us sitting and trying to like scratch at the door and try to get every bit of voice and right that we can um it's pretty i think just like drastically offensive <laughs> right yeah so mm. yeah that so that's pretty much what i hope to be following in in the future just to see where that's going but i also as i mentioned i think it's important for us not to be tunneled vision and i think it's really important to see even if that's an area of expertise i have making sure i know what's going on the rest of the negotiations how i can um, make sure that we see conflict of interest if it needs to be somewhere else than just the SBI, the arrangement for intergovernmental meetings, what can we learn as we see that theme across others or how do we use what else is going on to really promote conflict of interest. Um, and I think what is one thing that is I, I'm really looking forward to, I think, coming into COP25 and having a bit of experience here and specifically in how to like how to really understand what's going on in the policy and what's really going on in these meetings is how do we then translate it to the young people who are here who want to make big actions who want to make big big statements outside of the negotiation halls who want to have the big protests the banners what kind of messaging are they looking for where where can they actually put pressure 
that helps negotiators here get their jobs done. Yeah, no, um, definitely. And so I think that's what I see as a really exciting point is being a person who is more on the end of, of let's do the big actions, let's get youth power, let's let's get indigenous voices in, in actions, but that's mostly been outside the halls. Now it's how do we connect that with what's going on inside. Yeah, and I, I think um, in terms of what we can do as the, the, the strength of uh, of constituencies uh, like the Indigenous Peoples is that we are dynamic. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I, and I, I totally agree with what you said that like, you cannot be, even though your expertise is on a certain area, you cannot be. Uh, you, your lens should not be a zoom lens. Mm -hmm. You know, like if, if if you talk about lenses, it should be like wide-angle lens. And like, how does this relate to that? Um, so, like, how does how does your work relate to my work in mm -hmm. Article 6 uh, and human rights or loss and damage? So it's, and if you identify, if you, if you can identify actually, like, so what's going on in all these areas, patterns start to emerge. Yeah. You know, so you see, all right, this, what they're saying over here is the same thing that they're saying over there. Or mm -hmm. if they're saying something on loss and damage, that contradicts something on Article Six, for example, you can can walk up to to a, a certain states and hey, um, you're saying this, but over there you're saying that. So like, you, I think you should talk to that person because, you know, or and another thing that we can do, um, because we are so dynamic and th those states are are so big and they're so they have their instructions, you know, mm -hmm. and that we can be the link, the synergies, you know, like we can connect a, a, a um, for example, a state that is very much in favor of human rights, but uh, doesn't know how to connect with a like a small island state that wants to uh, be a champion of human rights, but can only do that with a developed state, for example. Mm -hmm. So like, and then you, c you can be that link, you know, by, by having these conversations. Uh, with those with those states, a lot of people think that all these people that are representing states, they're all like, um, in like they're bubble wrapped. You can't talk to them. Yeah. But the only way that you can make any change is by talking to them. You know, like by bringing the human element back. Yeah. You know, like walking up to them, to them like, hey, um, I heard you say this about human rights. Um, explain that to me. Not you don't necessarily have to like. Hey, I don't like your position. Yeah. Um, but these are instructions. Yeah. Um, what you want to know is like when you talk to them, like, all right, hey, where do you come from? Where does this come from? Yeah. Uh, usually, a position comes from a need. So, yeah. like, what do you need? Like that. That's what you, you can't ask. Like, what? What do you need? Because they'll say like, I need coffee. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I'll get you coffee. Like, get me my human rights done. Yeah. But it doesn't work that way. You know. <laughs> So, so you have to like by having these conversations, um, by having um, human interaction. You can't do this over email. Yeah. You know, like like you see, you see it all you see it all the time. Like most of the negotiations happen outside. Yeah. You know, so like you have to you have to go into like these conversations with them, and try to um, for your position for for your priority provide context. Yeah. All right. This is my this is why my priority this is why 
this is why we we need it mm-hmm. and just build them like it's it's all about strengthening their their position if they're on human rights strengthen them all right this is uh this uh this is what you can say like if so they'll probably say and and they're so upfront most of them yeah are so upfront like well i want i want to uh, promote human rights but i will get this when i say this mm-hmm. then it's up to you like all right um let's provide him with the arg- him or that particular person with the arguments like all right if they say this you can say that mm-hmm. it's about um being that little voice in the back of their heads you know yeah. when it comes to f- I'm, uh, I'm using human rights as an example but you can definitely use this in like conflict of interest or cor- corporate ab- accountability because yeah. um, mostly uh, what I've experienced over in the last in over years is that it's out of fear that they're not doing it. Mm-hmm. It's that they want to, but out of fear they're not doing it. So it's your role as a constituency or as a person um, to take away that fear yeah. by empowering them. So like it's 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 no use by condemning people. Like, well, you're not being tough enough on human rights. You should be stronger on human rights. Yes, they want to be stronger on human rights, but they can't do it because yeah. they, f- they fear some states saying this. And it's not just not necessarily about numbers, not that, that some states are talking in blocks. You know, like you have, you have groups within, within the geopolitical arena, of course. Um, that's not the biggest fear because out of the, in the end, we have 195 states and all each and every one of them have this has the same power you know like they have a voting in the united nations like in the general assembly like a, a small country as in benin in africa has the same voting power as uh, i don't know germany or, or france or us you know mm-hmm. like so um so you need to take away that those at least what i've learned is to take away that fear for, from states and build build them and in the end, in the end, it's they're not machines that are sitting behind those nameplates. Yeah, they're humans. They have their feelings. They have their families, and they have their concerns. Um, but and you can, you don't. I'm not talking about exploiting it. I'm talking about connecting with it. Yeah. And what if everything that if ever there's something that I've learned in this particular arena is it's like you said before, it's about building relationships building trust you know build that enabling environment mm-hmm. that that they can trust you and you can trust them yeah and, th- and i think that is something that i also employed in in the negotiations on the on the platform um states were so far apart from each other and in these peoples we had our priorities but like you can't not always rely on states to do the work for you you have to do you need yeah. to be willing to get your hands dirty, you know, roll up your sleeves and you know, like, and talk to states. Yeah. I from, <laughs> na- uh, I was I'm not the most extrovert person in the world. Um, but because I wanted to achieve something, yeah, I had a goal, I had a hope and a dream, in, in climate change, in the platform. I was like, you know what? I just step up to the to that guy and I just ask him, "Hey, w- tell me exactly what your position is." And I was prepared for that person to say like, 
well, that's my position. That's it. Deal with it. Now he actually said, um, let's have coffee. Hmm. Okay, yeah. So we exchanged numbers and, and, and we, not only do we have coffee, we, we use WhatsApp to like <laughs> <laughs> no seriously and that, that's something that, that's also a very very funny thing as well is that um, you can use the technology in your to your advantage to provide context mm-hmm. not to negotiate because negotiation needs human interaction yeah uh, like you try to convince some, someone you need human interaction a lot of things can get lost in tr- into translation in translation w- not translation but like bet- when you when you text people yeah yeah so the only thing that you can do is provide context. Yeah. Like, all right, this is where I come from, and you, you and that person will, will will explain a little bit. So it, when you meet each other, you have a much better understanding of where you, what you're where you come from. And those are the the, the things that I um, wish that we did a lot more. Yeah seeking that relationship like well don't get me wrong you don't have to shower with each other like there doesn't have to be a certain chemistry that you have to shower you know but you know like it's (laughs) we all we all crave stories and and in relationship we don't want to be able to relate to to people Mm -hmm. and if ever there's something that we indigenous people can bring to the table it's that not just the rights yeah, like you said, you know, it's it's that it's the indigenousness, if if that's a word, <laughs> you know, that we can bring to the table, the human element. Yeah, you know, and then and that's something that that I think we can amplify, and especially you know, especially from a young perspective like yours, you know, like you're young and indigenous. Congratulations, you know, you you have, <laughs> you got it, <laughs> you got it. Not that I'm old, but. <laughs> You you got it, you know. So um, so yeah. Just, just I don't know. I just this was a little bit this little bit my spiel <laughs> o- over <laughs> over here at the UN. So yeah, I was I was listening. I, r- I wrote down a few things that I I caught just to, to speak on a little bit of each. And I think the first thing you mentioned was was being wide angled and how important it is for us to be indigenous people here and and or just as people here to be able to keep that wide angle of understanding what's happening. I think that's so closely related to our cultures and our knowledge systems is, is that's why we understand things a lot differently than people's because we our whole indigenous traditional knowledge is built on trying to figure out how things connect and trying to understand that and we know that everything's connected and we we a lot of times we our, our knowledge has been a result of trying to figure out exactly how and and what we don't know we, we leave up as either we weren't meant to know or or something we'll figure out later in due time and I think I think that's interesting because um, even like in our culture that's like why we have the clan system is you try to figure out how people are related just through their introduction you can, right. you can yeah. piece it together and I think that's pretty there's very similar things a lot uh, along a lot of other indigenous cultures and mm-hmm. um, I think that the interesting part there though is, is that that sort of knowledge that we have of, of how piecing everything together was because our people have been sharing knowledge and and doing it over such a long time that when we're here we only have you know I mean we have time to prepare and do things like that but when things are moving fast here within these different walls and in different pieces 
we have to learn how to share our knowledge better because that's really how we how we've been doing it and and if we can do that learn how to do that here and how to make it a faster process then i think we're on to something when we talk about not necessarily when we talk about increasing our ability to really work in the system but we really increase our understanding so that we can use it to our benefit to understand how our culture can really impact this place um, and, and what our knowledge and what the relationships we bring we, we learn where where to put our energy so that we don't have to just kind of diffuse it everywhere or just show up and give all these speeches and no, have no idea what's really targeting because we can't build the relationship with every person in the room or with every party on every issue. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting on the, the long and short term, like quick learning and, and exchange of information. And I think we will need to figure out in the future as a caucus, how do we do that better? Um, right. And the other thing you talked a bit about was the humanness of the negotiators. I think that was the biggest lesson I think I took away from COP24 was watching how much our negotiations with on the platform changed by pretty much the, the amount of times we showed up and had young people speak and give their stories and, and bring songs and, and prayers and things like that. Um, we, we open up and bring prophecy. That's something that's not here. No other party is going to sit down and say, well, the creator told me this. That just would be absurd from anyone else yeah. and, and for whatever reason. And I think that's just why it's so important that we show up here and, and remember that. Um, because, it, it, as you said, is there's an, a lot of humanness behind the negotiations as, as much as it doesn't feel like that. Because I think a lot of the process is meant to keep it out. Um, but I think, I think there is something to it of once, once we can sit down and figure out what do they need, how can we help. Um, I think a lot of that too, or, or what, is their, what are their boundaries? Because I think one thing that I also learned a lot was the more I meet with the U.S. delegation and stuff like that, it's, we have, you know, that, that the top executive branch, we, they have a lot of, we have a lot of negative things. We're just like the worst at climate change <laughs> action is, is the best way to put it. And a lot of that stems from the executive branch. Um, and it's so interesting to hear that these are the same negotiators who worked under the Trump administration, who worked on, under the Obama administration. These people are paid as the negotiator not to provide the content, which is to me was just really weird. I was just like, what's wrong with you as a human being? Like, mm -hmm. how can you not understand this? And a lot of it is that's their job right now is to provide that negotiation and to do that job. And if they don't do it, someone else will probably do it. And who, kn who knows where that would go, but they can have whatever view they want on climate change. It's they're trying to figure out how to work within those lines. Um, and I think that's what our job is as constituencies, as young people, people not here in the halls when we talk about civil and large-scale society action is the more that we can do to disrupt and make elected politicians fear like they're, they're making the wrong decisions, the more those circles and, and those red lines open up for these negotiators. And hopefully that's for the best. <laughs> but it does give them more ability to be human here in the negotiations, the more pressure we can put on people back home. Um, and I think that's feel like I learned a lot of that last year and, and also just kind of watching a lot of the platform negotiations just I felt like there's like flipped overnight we were just like these are the parties that w are blocking and we will never get there and then just like it just happened <laughs> and I th a lot of it was with the, the work of relationship and I, th I think a lot of it had to do is I, we heard a lot of feedback too about like how nice it was to start these negotiation sessions off with with ceremony or with song or with with 
prayer. And I think the more that we can learn to shake up things like that and try to try to open up the negotiations, that's where we'll see that real work done, as you mentioned. And that's where we see those red lines either open up or the negotiators become more bold to press on that red line. Um, as we both mentioned that we did as since we were kids. <laughs> uh, how, how can they push it the line? It all comes back, right? It's all comes back. That's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think, I think you, you are right about the, the decisions being made not to speak up out of fear and I, whether it's strong arm from, from intergovernmental relations or whether it's even internal or, or the, ne- the negotiator to their government. There's a lot. And because I think a lot, a lot of times people think they're just... I don't want to say that there's more at stake. A lot of people, a lot of time people think there's more at stake to say something, but I think we're at a time right now in trying to deal with climate change that we're at a point where it's a lot more at stake to not say something, Um, especially if it's something that will push this forward, right? And bring any sort of real solution that can help our people globally. Right. Um, Yeah. No, (laughs) absolutely. Man, let's like if if I look back at the at the negotiations, like it's it was um like the moments that really humanized the whole thing was when um Elder Howard Thompson shared stories just out of the blue. <laughs> that really like humanized the whole thing. When like you said, we shared dances and songs and chants, and that really humanized the whole thing. And it's, and I've never been to a caucus that has been so amazing the day after the final negotiations, that the <laughs> states and Indian peoples, like in such a euphoric state, got that yeah. we accomplished something together. And, and a lot of people out there, the people are like, yeah, you guys are sellouts. But like, you need to be in there. You need to have to be there, and like, because it, it's, it's such a feeling that that I experienced, at least that I experienced, that we accomplished something. We we broke new grounds. We did something new, innovative. Actually, mm-hmm. it's not actually innovative. It's just actually what we've been doing for for uh, since time immemorial, right? As yeah. indigenous peoples, <laughs> <laughs> the only thing is that. They are, they, they're catching up to us. Yeah, actually, and then that that that's so that's so that's so fascinating, and then hopefully that and with COP twenty five is coming coming up in December. And are you going to Santiago de Chile? Mm-hmm. Ah, oh, amazing. How how do you pre- how do you prepare for that? How do you prepare for a meeting like COP or SB? Yeah. Um, well, this year is going to be a lot different because I, I mentioned that I'm, I'm leading the delegation. And this right. will be my first yeah. time actually leading it, um, which I think will just come with a whole bunch more. Res- I don't even know if, I, if responsibility is the word, but I, at least in my head, the logistics are blowing up. <laughs> how do I bring 12 people and housing, flights, all of that, fundraising right. budget? Um, so that's that's going to be new for me. But I think in general, I think. And it also depends from year to year how much we've learned, but also working on teams, we always have our team that prepares. And I think what I've learned is the more that we spend our time working on our strategy and our and our plan, not just getting caught up on what happened last year and understanding what we might be walking into, but what what is our goals of our delegation? How are we going to show up? 
what like we a lot of like both years that I've been here we've like tried to pre-plan actions of like what would be the big thing that we go out and do and it's it's really hard to do that because the, the biggest messages are going to be ones that are actually reactive to what's going on in here that might actually get attention because it relates um, and I think a lot of times that when we did that we became really bad at engaging with other other uh, whether it was constituencies, whether it was other NGOs, other organizations, we were like, let's partner. We need, we want to get 300 people at this action, but by the way, we already planned it all, and here's, here's your role. And it's, and it's <laughs> because we spent so much time preparing, we never had, we never let in the room for other people to contribute, and then when we wanted to show up and be partners, we did it very poorly. And so I'm, I'm weary of having a lot of set plans, mm -hmm. but I think, and I, we've talked about this already, um, but what I see as being the biggest thing that our delegation can do in preparation is build that relationship. Right. Build, like, there's a lot to do in terms of information of just what, what are you, what are you going about to get into, especially for a bunch of first timers. Right. Um, that's important, but I don't think the, let's pull out the paper and put it on the wall and put our three main talking points, our objectives. I think that's, when we, it's important to do maybe once we're all here and stuff like that and we start to get a, a feel of things, but so many times we're trying to do that like four months in advance, six months in advance, trying to figure out what this is and then we show up and every time we talk to someone and learn something new and think, oh, maybe we didn't have it right six months ago, that becomes almost in conflict with what we came up with and therefore it was a waste of our time or, or then we be somehow become negotiators with our partners and saying like, oh, we, we allowed you to do this and so now we need this or we lost some of this like we met you halfway yeah or we met you a little bit on one bit of the mm -hmm. whole plan that we wrote and therefore we we you're a bad partner because you're asking for us to change and i think that has been a lot of my biggest like frustrations of working with this <laughs> working with with broad u.s youth delegations um and and not that we shouldn't prepare and and but I think it comes down again. There was a lot of like self validation. There's like we're here to do this, and the, our Google drives are insane. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably half. I don't think I've read half the documents, but <laughs> um, yeah. So I think I think that's has been what it has been in the past of just a lot of information thrown at you. But we did a lot of like strategy planning and things like that. And I think maybe less than that is important of just. Let's, let's know what's going on there. Let's know what's going on outside. Let's make sure that when, we, when we're going to bring a, once we figure out who our delegation is and we have this delegation, let's, let's introduce them to the caucus beforehand. Let's, like, even if it's over email, like, let's just let them know we're showing up. Let's make sure that we're chatting with Tara Fatu before just the day we show up and, and make sure that when we're trying to come up with like, plans and, and strategies or even just trying to figure out what's going on, that we can create we have this technology around us to create better partnerships than we show up with. And so I think we shouldn't always be about, here's our delegation, what are our plans as a delegation? We should be really engaging with everyone else and saying, like, what are you following? And, and as we mentioned, how do we share that knowledge? And how do we give ourselves a little more time to do that, I think is what's important. Um, so that's my hope with what's going on. Right, right. We'll see how all of this actually <laughs> plays out. Maybe we should do this again in December at the last day. but. Yeah, let's let's see. It's <laughs> it's for, for me is it's always um you can always you can you can you cannot you cannot prepare enough. No, not that not I'm not saying that right. Um you think you're prepared. Yeah. But once you hit 
you know, once you hit Katowice or once you hit Bonn or whatever it is, or Santiago de Chile in December, and you get a feel of what's going on, you know, like you always know, all right, shit, um, this is something else, uh, something different. So we have to like, we have to adapt. So like, it all comes down to like, oh, like how, <laughs> how good are you thinking on your feet? You know, like mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's about how good are you at like adapting and and I'm I'm not I'm not saying that you're changing, but like like how do you, um, yeah. So and it's, I think and f- f- I think with the experience of the the Tierra Fatu crew from Aotearoa, New Zealand, that was that was amazing last year. Now you you were part of the 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 youth crew as well <laughs> um so i don't want to sing well i don't want to give them too much props because you were part of that group as well um and i think actually because the, the first week of of cop in 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 katowice was on a platform of course mm-hmm. all right we got that second week was on a rule book and my experience was was that most of the work that was done was by the youth was by yourself and Tiara Fatu. Okay, can you remember? Can you remember that? Like, I think I called. I was a coach. Topic, I called an emergency meeting <laughs> about because there was something going on on the on, on the um, on the rule book, mm-hmm. and it was like immediately the youth, right? You, yourself, like, all right, let's check out with constituencies. <laughs> let's do this. Tiara Fatu was like, all right. Let, let's let's how how can we prepare for this? And it was the youth that mostly carried carried the entire caucus for the second week for the second week mm-hmm. like hands down seriously like if there's um gotta give you respect for the, you guys respect <laughs> for that because i cannot even imagine what we would have done without you guys because it was um because we saw so dynamic you know did you, like so i want yeah maybe called hungry but like like you want to do something like you saw that there's a problem um, the states were all like, "Yeah, platform, many people's human rights." Yeah, next minute, like they they throw you under the bus when <laughs> it comes to the the uh, Paris rule book, and then we all had to like change in an instant. You know, we mm-hmm. we were like celebrating, popping champagne, and everything <laughs> else. No, we seriously, we we weren't drinking champagne at all. <laughs> I thought I don't <laughs> for those people listening, we weren't drinking champagne. <laughs> And then the next mi- the next minute we were like, all right, shift into gear, and it was mostly the youth that actually was like, all right, um, how do we do this? And it's and it was such a great feeling of at least for me, and some people that um, that were doing the same working with me as well. Of I only had to like tell you guys, all right, um, in terms of lobbying this is what you do. Now you map out the negotiation area. Like mm-hmm. these are the states that are involved. These are their, their position and everything. And I just uh, had to step out of the office for like three hours and then came back. Like the whole wall <laughs> was, was painted with, <laughs> w- with plastered with, with, with pieces of paper of, of, of positions and, 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 and roadmaps and all that. And I was like, this is what, what it, we should have been doing every day. <laughs> Seriously, for the last couple of 20 years. Like we, we got, don't get me wrong, we, we have gone very far mm-hmm. with what, uh, with the work that we do. The, you got to recognize Grace Balawak uh, and all the people, all those people that have been instrumental 
um, since the very get-go when these people first entered the NFCCC arena. You got to respect them for that. Um, but I also do recognize the opportunities uh, that are out there when you bring in the, u- the, the youth, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's all about like, all right, let's do this, let's do this, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and the way that you guys um, handle things, get yourselves organized. And, and I, I remember that they all were like, fuck, this is, this is, this is next level shit, but I'm, I'm like, uh, they were like, uh, I haven't eaten yet. Well, I haven't eaten all day. <laughs> I just had water in the morning. Um, and I tried to go for a run in Katowice. Minus five <laughs> degrees Celsius. <laughs> Sounds horrible. <laughs> Never doing that again. Um, but yeah, but it, it was it was such amazing. And and then I think they afterwards felt so fulfilled mm-hmm. of yeah of having done the work. You know, yeah. like how did you feel after COP twenty four? Yeah, I think. I think COP24 was interesting because I felt like we had a lot more wins from coming out of our indigenous caucus and the work there that like going back and reporting to my other delegation, I kind of forgot they existed like <laughs> literally the whole time. I, I like did not do much, I think, in terms of engaging. Well, I did a lot of the actions and some of the big actions work um, when it came back to just kind of organizing people and, and giving even like some of us who were working more on policy like here's another pl- thing you can try and like getting him out to some of the bigger actions and some of the uh we all end up i think terrified we all got on the big s- the one that blocked the stairs on the last day oh yeah yeah um so there i think there was good good chances to balance and that wouldn't have happened without showing up with the delegation i had which really did a lot of that organizing of big actions and it allowed me to do a lot of the work with the indigenous people's caucus then come back out and without having to necessarily plan too much but saying like here's what's going on and what's important to us if anything you plan the action let us know if we can speak or something to to have some of the messaging and i think there was some ways to act with that but i think i felt out of my delegation probably the most i felt leaving very positive especially compared i also felt like i had a little bit more energy than when i left in cop 23 (laughs) i feel like that time i was just completely exhausted me too um Um, yeah (laughs) it took me it took me at least a week yeah to get me my energy back like I, I don't know what it was because I've I've been to well if I go to New York for human rights meetings or Geneva and I'm away for two weeks or one week mm-hmm. I'm not as run down as two weeks of cop yeah like as soon as I get back in the airplane already I'm like I'm done. <laughs> I'm stick a fork in me. I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I'm, and I need at least seven days because my whole rhythm is like it's all over the place. Yeah, and I don't know what. And I try to take care of myself. Like, how do you take care of yourself when you're a cop? Well, you don't run, of course, but like, <laughs> like, yeah, I think. <laughs> any, any practical tips for people out there? You know, the, the the new delegates. Yeah, I think it was for me. It was important to have that, like building those relationships that we said like um another shout out to india is like we would get like we would do so much work that it like we would make sure things got done but 
I don't even know how much of this was because we were sleep deprived, but then we, there was always plenty of time to like, in the middle of our work, kind of let loose and be weird, silly, ridiculous, and still be ha able to have enough focus of like knowing when, enough time to do that and then know what the next step is that you have to do and when the next deadline is and be confident that you can make it. But yeah, so, and then so much of that just like, being able to relate with someone about kind of how ridiculous this whole experience is too is is enough to keep you a little more sane um or more insane i don't really know but at least you're there with someone else um but yeah i think like that was always india was always someone for me that i got to have a lot of that time especially being away from my delegation for a lot of the work and trying to support indigenous peoples in, in the caucus and also as indigenous people representation and in, in actions and figuring out how to really engage other people um, you always have to have some sort of relationship or those people that you can have that little break no matter how small it can be a lot of times it's it's just that important and um, yeah I, I think kind of depended on the year I, I always knew those people that were kind of my go-to of like I can either talk to you about work or vent, or I just need to not talk about anything for a little bit. And um, yeah, just on the finding those people, whether it was in, in when we were in COP23, we had like an hour train ride back. Everyone was stinks. We were all so far away that like, you, I just had to find the right people to get on that train with and make sure that we could just kind of debrief and hang out or, or do whatever we needed. Um, and then throughout the day, I think it's, as dehumanizing this as this is, trying to find those faces in the crowd, just run into, running into people that you can stop and have that humanizing, a human conversation, a wild idea here. But yeah, making, even even in, in just running, just making sure that like you're kind of keeping your eyes up and paying attention to other people too, and just making sure you're embracing all those relationships around you, I think is really what's helped me. Yeah, And, and I think at the same time too, there's something about, and when we talked about preparation, this is one thing that kind of stuck in my head is there's a lot of things that you can't prepare for. And the, the, I think for me, the most valuable things that I can't prepare for is, is bringing who I am and bringing my culture and understanding that. And when it comes to how do I prepare Amen. for COP, it's been my whole lifetime of, of trying to learn more about who I am, who my family is, what, what our values are, what our knowledge is more about our culture how does it tie into this it's it's that whole lifetime of trying to piece things together and now we're just dealing with a new issue but my whole lifetime i've been trying to piece those things together now i just have to figure out what the new story is right now um and i feel like that's been to me the most powerful moments i've had where i felt like people were listening to me was when i had a chance to put that all together and and display it here um and whatever platform that was whether it's an, an intervention an action um an article uh, I think for me that was a lot of it and then a lot of times too is it's one of the pre the things that we can't bring is how much how much this means to us how much our community means to us how much this how much we have to keep an understanding of what this work can do for our people um, how much it, I don't know in the end it needs to be done and and we know that we're here on because we want to serve our people not because we want to serve the UN I think for me, that's what is so different about us coming in here versus versus a lot of other people, I, even NGOs and stuff. A lot of when this work is kind of about self-serving or or whatever it could be, trying to do something good but at your own expense. There's there's a lot more at stake when you're really based and focused in your community and trying to figure out 
how to lessen that. Like you think about everything going on at home and you think about, oh, I only slept, you know, a couple hours tonight and I, now I have to run and do this. It's, it feels like nothing. And I think that's something different that goes on here, especially when you're indigenous and thinking about how many people, when we show up to our rooms, it's not just us. When we show up in a room to speak or when we show up to do work, it's not just us. It's all of our ancestors who supported us to get here mm-hmm. and all the community there that's yep. still with us. So I think that's another big part of the how to take care of yourself is just when you need to take a moment to remember that you just you do and that's for a lot of for a lot of people like that's something that we've been doing for a while and so you just that's something else that we yeah bring here with us right man that that's such a powerful message about taking care of yourself you, you, you captured it everything and it's I think we should end it here, man. Like, <laughs> like I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> Amazing. No, seriously. Um, we're definitely gonna talk somewhere like after COP, like, and then, um, because I definitely want to pick your brain a little bit more. But like, like I said, we're done. It's, it's like it's it's so late already. Like the whole the whole UN building has left, and we are the only ones left over here. And I'm. And take, talking about taking care of ourselves, I'm starved. <laughs> I gotta eat. Fair <laughs> enough. All right, I appreciate it, man. Thank yeah, you so of much. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I really enjoyed documenting the work. Um, so please subscribe to this podcast and share it. And if you want to continue the conversation, you can drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn and let me know what you think. Have a great day. <laughs>